The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Continuing on in Philippians chapter 2, we spent the last two weeks around Christmas looking at Philippians 2, basically 6 through 11. This amazing hymn, uh, this amazing declaration of who Jesus is. And it really is one of the most powerful pieces of verse in all of Scripture. And uh, I hope you enjoyed meditating and looking at it. I did a lot. I didn't communicate nearly what I wish I could have or would have. Because it's, it's just glorious to think about the God of the universe, Jesus in all his glory, laying aside his glory, his, his incredible power, and taking on himself human flesh, taking on the limits of humanity, without in any way giving up any of who he was as God, uh, and doing that specifically, this, this progression of steps down, downward to become a human, downward to become not just a human, but to be a slave, to take upon himself humility, to empty himself, and to ultimately, in obedience, die for us. And that as a result of that, God has supremely exalted him because he humbled himself. God the Father supremely exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow the knee in submission and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, I mean, it just doesn't get it. There's no passage of Scripture that just is packed with the punch of that passage, right? So, like, if I was writing the book of Philippians, I would have just said, glory to God, amen. How could I possibly write anything else, right? But actually, Paul uh, puts this in there as kind of a site, as, as an illustration to a point he's making, okay? This wasn't actually the point, believe it or not. Uh, he uses this to illustrate his argument that really began way back in first part of chapter 1, which we're not going to look at the whole argument. Uh, but in, in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, you need to live worthy of the gospel, right? And so this hymn comes as part of him explaining what it means to live worthy of the gospel. And the context before this great hymn, he's talking about them getting along. To live worthy of the gospel means to get along, to be in peace, to live in unity, to be like-minded, to share the same love, heart, and purpose, right? And he gives Jesus as an example of this. He says, you need to have the mind of Christ who was like this, who humbled himself and emptied himself. And then afterwards, he follows it with this thought. And let me read. Uh, I'm going to read it from two different translations. First, the New Living says this. So he just finished this great hymn, right? And this is what he says. So then, dear friends, okay, in light of all that, uh, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away... It is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. That's kind of a, a loose paraphrased translation. I mean, it's a translation, but they take some liberties. Here's a more direct literal translation. Well then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, Note that word, as you have always obeyed, not only as in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue working out your own salvation with all godly fear. 
For the one who works mightily in you is God, who produces in you both the determination to work and the power to carry it out, all in accordance with his good pleasure. Uh, Maybe some of you memorize this verse, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And, uh, you know, this, this is a passage I could have avoided. Why did I pick this? I don't know. It's interesting that this is what Paul says on the heels of this incredible hymn about Jesus' work. He says, So then, beloved, keep obeying as you've always done. Work out your salvation. Well, what is this all about? Let's start with this idea of obedience, first of all. He says, you've always obeyed. He said, when I was there, you obeyed. And, of course, Paul had gone to Philippi and had evangelized that place. He had proclaimed the gospel there. And they had received it quite readily. And uh, Paul says that you, when I was there, you were obedient, right? He says, now even more so, when I'm not there to watch over you, you need to continue in your obedience, right? And uh, the significance of this on the heels of what he just talked about is clearly the obedience of Christ, right? Uh, He picks out of that whole stanza, that whole amazing declaration of who Jesus was and his glorification. He zeroes in on this idea of obedience. And he says, praise God, you have been obedient and you need to continue in that course and in that track. Now, the question is, what were they obeying? Okay? And if you're, you know, if you're a New Testament, you know, person who believes in grace, who believes in the gospel, who believes that we're saved, you know, not by works of our own, but through grace, this should raise all kinds of red flags for you, right? You should be going, what is he talking about here? Obedience, keeping the law working for salvation. You know, was Paul having a bad day here? What is he talking about? Because this is not what I learned in Sunday school. I learned that we get saved through faith, right? Didn't Paul read Romans, you know? Oh, yeah, he wrote Romans. You know, the just shall live by faith. It's not by works, you know? He needs to reference back to Ephesians, right? What is he talking about here? Obedience. Obey what? Well, certainly, you know, does he, is he saying here you were obedient to the law of Moses? Were you obedient to the commands of God? Is that what he's talking about? Is he talking about being obedient to Paul? He said, you know, I, you're obedient when I was there. Does that mean they, like, made him coffee and stuff? And what, what is he talking about when he says, be obedient? In your Christian life, if you're anything like mine, maybe yours isn't, but I know for me, one of the most wonderful things I discovered was after I got saved, and uh, I got saved in a little bit of a legalistic church where great emphasis was put on how you dress and how short your hair was and you know, of course, how many times you went to church, which was always, every day. And they had church every day just to accommodate that. And, uh, you know, um, it was all this very external thing, of which I was none of. And, and I, I really resisted this. And, and for a long time, uh, I was very resistant of anything that, that even hinted at the word obey, right? Because I looked at that as legalism, right? As falling into this our conformity of rules and regulations. And I thought that's not the... And then one of the most glorious, liberating things was to learn that that's not the gospel, right? The gospel is not obedience to laws and rules and regulations. You know, we don't have a dress code at church. Praise God. You can dress pretty much any way you want. I mean, there probably are some limits, but nobody's ever got close, right? You can dress sharp and nice. We appreciate that. Uh, you can dress, you know, in your pajamas. 
you know, if, you're, if it's comfortable and nobody's going to kick you out of church. And it has nothing to do with the gospel, right? Because we're saved by grace. What Paul implies here, he says, you've always been obedient since I first came to you. And the context and the wording, uh, it really means this. This is really what he's saying. He says, you have been obedient to the gospel, okay? When I came and I preached the message of good news to you, you obeyed that message. Now, that to me is just an oxymoron, obedient to the gospel. Okay, what does that mean, right? Um, and just to confirm that, that Paul used this expression in other places, let me quote two other references where Paul says this. In 2 Corinthians 9.13, he says, As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all the believers, and, and, and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news. Okay, you are obedient to the gospel. Uh, he says it kind of in a negative context in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel. Okay? So our salvation... Is, is not just by faith, actually, as it turns out. <laughs> Who knew? But it also has something to do with obeying the gospel. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to obey the good news? Uh, I thought it was all about tr- faith, right? So now he's talking about obedience. So now which is it? Do we get saved by faith or by works? I'm so confused. Okay. Well, let's see if we can figure this out. Uh, obedience and faith. Uh, the truth is, that true obedience, I'm going to put my back up, true faith, true faith cannot exist without obedience, okay? Uh, they are one and the same thing. We've got to understand and sort out a little bit what we mean by obedience, okay? Because the word in English, uh, we have one word. Actually, in the Greek, uh, as Paul uses it, there are different words, okay? So when Paul talks about obeying the law, obeying the commandments, keeping the law, he uses one set of words and language and vocabulary. But when he talks about obeying the gospel, he uses a completely different word. Right? But it all gets translated in English, obedience. So let's kind of sort some of this out. Uh, what does it mean to have faith that takes action or that obeys versus obeying the law and keeping the commandments? Well, first of all, what it's not, okay? We know from other passages of Scripture and what the gospel is all about, that it's not about gaining or making merit. It's not about being good enough to deserve or merit salvation. Okay? And that's the kind of works that Paul is very much against. Right? And when, when Paul especially addresses Jewish audiences who were living by the law, who were obeying the commands of God, who were very zealously keeping the most minute details of the law, Paul was very careful to explain to them that it's by faith, not by works. Because they viewed works, they viewed obedience as a means of merit to deserve God's salvation, right? That by their own goodness, by their own effort, by their own labor, in fact, one of the words that's used for obeying the law is really the word to labor at something, to labor at the law, right? To by my own effort, do good things, do good works. And by that 
to deserve or merit God's favor. So we could illustrate it this way. Imagine there's two men, you know, kind of the two men and one life jacket scenario, okay? You're in, a, you're, in a, you're in a boat out in the middle of the ocean, and the boat's sinking, and you have one life preserver, right? Who gets it, right? It's not strong enough to keep both of you afloat. Only one gets it. And you have these great ethical questions. And here's the two guys, okay? The one guy is a doctor, a brilliant surgeon who uh, saves, saved many lives and has great skill to save lives. Uh, with his money, he has been extremely generous. So instead of consuming it on himself, he's been an extraordinary neighbor, helping the poor, feeding the hungry, taking care of orphans all around the world. He's like the perfect husband. He, he's always bringing his wife flowers and just adores her, takes her out to dinner, buys her the best clothes, just loves his wife. He's the perfect dad who reads his kids' stories you know, all night long and, and buys them every, every good educational toy and gets them the best. That, he's like Mr. Wonder Dad, right? Okay, that's, that's person number one. Right? Person number two is a drunk, an alcoholic, lost his job, his wife's left him. Well, his first wife left him. He left the, he left the other two, right? He hasn't played his child support. He's, a, he's, a, he's a no good for nothing, right? Okay, which one deserves the life jacket? Well, we would all say the doctor, right? Because he, there's something meritorious about his life, right? Okay, that's merit. And a lot of people, you know, the Jews and, and the people who uh, would see themselves being a good person would see, look, I'm the doctor. Look how wonderful I am. I'm Mr. Superhusband and Dad and what a wonderful guy I am. I deserve salvation. I deserve God's good treatment, right? That's, that's not what Paul's talking about here, okay? We can say, absolutely, obeying the gospel is not that, right? It is not by my own goodness and my own ability and determination skill deserving God's favor. And so all effort to be a good person by that means right, is, in terms of salvation, worthless. Right? And Jesus says, right, the Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. And one of the reasons is, it, it is because in the end it's self-serving. If we were to interview the doctor and we were to say, why are you such a good person? Why do you do all these good things? He might give answers, well, and I'm nice to my wife because I want her to do stuff for me, right? I'm nice to my kids because I'm going to get old one day and I'm going to be sick and decrepit and I want them to take care of me, right? So they owe me now because I took good care of them. Okay, the truth is all good works done for merit are, in, are inherently self-serving. It's selfish, right? I'm doing it to get something. And oftentimes it's very manipulative, right? I'm manipulating God. I'm manipulating people. You owe me because of what I have done. Um, the, the other problem with it is that the whole sin thing, <laughs> you know, we're all lost in sin, and none of us are ever that good, right? So that's not what we're talking about, but we're, we are talking about obedience and faith in the gospel. So what, what does that mean? Well, it means acknowledging that we are not good enough, right? The good news, the message of the gospel is that we need saving because we're lost. We need rescuing because we are sinking. And we are not the good doctor who's Mr. Superguy, right? We are the other guy. Okay, whatever our circumstances are, we know 
we don't deserve to be rescued because we are inherently in sin and rebellion against God. Because that's the first thing is we need the gospel. We need saving. We need God's grace because we don't deserve it. Um, And we hear this message of good news that, you know what? Here's the good news. God loves you in spite of who you are. God loves you in spite of the fact that you are, you're pretty wretched and miserable, okay? And the fact is that you're not half, I mean, yeah, you're not half as good as you think you are. Uh, You know some of the evil. God knows the full darkness of your heart. But the good news is God loves you anyway. And he sent Jesus, his own son, and that's Philippians 2, uh, 6 through 11. Jesus stepped down from heaven to earth, from earth to become a slave, from there to, to be obedient to, to death. Right? He was the sacrifice for our sin so that we could have life in him. And that's the gospel message. And we, we hear that. And in faith, we have to respond to it. We have to believe it's true. Uh, and that is where the step of obedience comes. Okay, there's a huge difference between acknowledging that something is true and really putting the full weight of faith in it, right? So let's go back to our ocean scene. Two guys, Mr. Doctor and Mr. Loser, floating in the ocean. The boat's already sunk, and as it turns out, the life jacket was defective, <laughs> right? So it sunk too, and now they're no boat, no paddle, nothing, and they're quickly sinking and about to drown, and uh, Mr. Doctor, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, all that merit uh, is not keeping him afloat, right? No matter how many books he read to his children, he still sinks. Gravity still works. And so now, thankfully, along comes a rescue lifeguard helicopter, right? And they lower the little, little ropey thing down with the crane. Right? And, and the option is there for both of them. The guy gets on the loudspeaker. You know, you're both safe. You know, don't worry. We can save you both. Just grab hold of the rope, right? Everything has been supplied and provided for them to be saved, right? The helicopter's there. It's full of fuel. There's skilled people driving it. Uh, The rope is strong. It can haul haul a boat out of the water. No problem hauling them out. Everything's been provided, right? The, the, The rope with a loop on the end gets lowered, and they said, just loop that over your arms, and we'll haul you out, uh, and the doctor says to himself, I think these guys are Russians, okay? And they're going to kidnap me, and they're going to they're kill me. And uh, maybe it's just a joke. What happens if I grab hold of the rope, and I get halfway, and they cut the rope just to watch me fall back into the ocean? And he says to himself, I'm not grabbing that rope. Right? I'm going to wait for a different Coast Guard, right? Because these guys are Russians, or whoever. Right? The second guy, though, goes, man... You're nuts. I'm grabbing the rope. Okay, I believe this is my way of salvation. And he does what? Well, he grabs hold. He obeys. He takes steps to appropriate what's been provided for him. And he, in obedience, does what the guy in the helicopter tells him. Right? He responds in obedience. See, that's, that's the way it is. God has provided everything for our salvation. He has taken care of every detail and he has fully supplied the lifeline for us. And we have the option of believing it can save us or not. And if we choose to believe that, yeah, this can save us, acknowledging that fact is not enough. We've got to put it on. 
we have got to, in faith, take steps of obedience to appropriate and grab hold of what God has supplied and provided. That's not working for my salvation. It's responding in obedience to the call of faith. And so that's why Paul can say, you know, you've been obedient to the gospel, okay? Now keep walking in that obedience, right? uh, Salvation requires that of us. Um, and as I said, it's, it's, it's obedience beyond, beyond rules, okay? So when we talk about being obedient to the gospel, we're not in any way talking about some, some list of do's and don'ts, and to be honest, that would be easier. It would be so much easier to say, you know, to be a good Christian, you just got to go to church uh, once a week, read your Bible at least three times a week, uh, give some money to God, and, you know, don't beat people up. And you check off that list. Choo, 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 choo. Oh, yeah, I'm obedient, right? In a lot of ways, that's a lot easier. Uh, but the word, as Paul uses it, really means literally to hear. It means to hear is to hear the voice of God and do what he calls us to, right? In faith, believing that God knows what he's talking about. So obedience beyond the rules. Um, a great kind of illustration of this, uh, of faith in action, it's, it's a negative example, but it's just such a good example. You know, if we believe what God says, it, ought to, it, it requires us to act and live and, and do something about it. And I'm reminded, you know, this pastor thinking back over the past year, one of the big news stories was the end of the world, right? That God was, remember this? The group was going to, God was going to come back. And uh, this group had been convinced that, I don't remember the date now, and it's gotten revised. I think it's coming again this year, right? I think there's a, there's a replay, a rerun. And, you know, people believed that. They believed it. And what did they do because of their belief? Well, they sold their houses. They quit their jobs. They... You know, they, they checked out, right? They did something because they were so convinced that, that this was true, right? Well, that's what faith ought to do in us. When we believe something, if we're truly convinced that the gospel saves us, uh, we ought to do something about it, right? It ought to, it ought to be, there ought to be some evidence in our life about it. Well, so, they, so he says, okay, so that's obey. You know, you've been obedient. And he says, so now in my presence, now in my absence, and I'm not watching you, but you still need to keep walking in obedience. And you need to do that by working out your salvation. Well, what does he mean by that? Uh, obviously, it doesn't mean working to get saved, right? It doesn't mean that, that somehow if we, don't, if we don't cough up the right works, then in the end, we won't be saved, right? Because uh, that would be working for salvation. Okay, Jesus paid the full, complete total price for us, right? There's nothing you can add to it. So, you know, I don't know what you did this past week that you feel bad about. Anybody do anything bad they feel bad about? No, you don't have to raise your hand. Um, you know, sometimes when we, fe- we do something, we regret it. Do you ever feel like you want to do some kind of penance, <laughs> Right? You want to beat yourself up. You want to call yourself names. Beat your head against the wall or something. Flog yourself. Uh, somehow that we can add to the punishment to make it better, right? But there's nothing you can do because, well, you can do all those things, but it has no effect because Jesus paid it all, right? He's paid the full. It is fully forgiven. There's nothing we can add to it. So what does he mean by work out your salvation? 
Well, we have to understand a little bit what salvation really means. What does it mean to be saved? Okay, here's a, here's a question. You can raise your hand on this one. Is anybody here saved? Okay, a few of you, okay? We'll pray for the rest, right? Um, there's a sense in which, yes, you can say, I can say, on such and such a date, I got saved, right? But there's also a sense in which we can say, I could say to all of you, the truth is, none of you are saved. Because full and final salvation doesn't happen until the day of judgment, right? And someday we'll all stand before God, we'll all stand before Jesus on the judgment throne of God, and it's going to be a tense moment for everybody because it's at that time that we, re- we, we truly receive salvation, right? The, the full end of it, right? And uh, most of us, were living in hope. We have faith, we have confidence. We're pretty sure that when we stand before Jesus on that day, he will be our advocate and he will say, innocent, I have covered it all. There is no sin. They are pure and spotless. Enter my kingdom, right? And we'll go, oh, yes. I was worried, right? Then we will have, then we will truly be saved, right? And Paul, and throughout Scripture, talks about salvation in those terms, both its, its past event as well as its full and future completed fulfillment, right? Someday we will be ultimately saved. Uh, and, and really the difference in what's past and what's future has to do with the idea of what we're saved from and what we are saved to. And see, one of the things that as we think about salvation, often we tend to think in salvation in terms of what we are saved from, right? What are you saved from? Sin? Self? Death. That, that's a big one. Death, okay? That's the big one. Gone through Genesis, we learned this, right? Uh, the wages of sin is death, right? And the good news is that when you have a conversion experience, you are instantly translated from death to life, right? So you're saved from death, and you now are alive in Christ. That's what we're saved from. But it's also true that we are saved to something, and if we see salvation only as being what we're saved from, that we're no longer guilty, we're no longer condemned, and we're no longer under the punishment of death, that's all we see salvation as, then this, this verse will be confusing to you. Work out your salvation. Well, what is it I work out? Right? It's already, I'm already alive. Sin has already been forgiven. Right? But we're also saved to something. And we are saved to a life with Christ where we fully and completely become like him, right? We are saved to a destiny of good things, good works, good fruit, right? Jesus said, I called you and appointed you that you might bear fruit and fruit that will last. We're saved to something. Great example of this, there's a story about a very famous person in England. You'll find out who he is at the end of the story. Um, But it starts off with a, a farmer, poor Scottish farmer named Fleming. And one day while he was trying to make a living out in the fields, he heard this, this cry off in the distance and he put down his farming tools and ran off to this bog, this kind of swamp area. And in this, there, there was a small boy who had fallen into this bog in the swamp and he was drowning. And so he you know, waded into the mire and drugged this kid out and, and saved him. Well, later that evening when he was at home, uh, a, a wealthy nobleman pulls up in this fancy carriage 
and gets out and he said, you know, I want to thank you for saving my son. And he was a nobleman and a lord and a man of obvious wealth. And he said, I want to pay you for what you did. And Fleming res- responded to the, the nobleman. He says, look, you can't pay me for that. You know, I just did what any God-fearing citizen would do. And about then, Fleming's son came out of the house and the nobleman saw his son. He said, is that your son? He said, yes. And he said, well, because of what you've done for my son, let me at least help your son by sending him to school and helping him get a good education. So he did. And this boy went to uh, some very famous universities and studied medicine and um, was very successful. And he grew up to be the discoverer. He grew up to be the noted scientist, Sir Alexander Fleming, who's known as the, the inventor of penicillin. Penicillin, right? Uh, so time goes by, and years later, the same nobleman's son who was saved from the, the bog was stricken with pneumonia. And as an adult, his pneumonia was treated with, guess what? Penicillin, right? And he was saved, right? Uh, the, name of the, no- the name of the nobleman who was saved from pneumonia was, guess who? Randolph Churchill. That was the nobleman. His son, who was saved from the bog, was Sir Winston Churchill. Right? Now, so here's Sir Winston Churchill. You could say he was saved from the bog, right? Which is true. He would have died on that day. But uh, history would say he was not just saved from something. He was saved to a destiny, right, that would change history. Well, the same is true for you and I. You've been saved from sin and death. But way more, you have been saved to an eternal destiny where God wants to do incredible things in your life and through your life, right? far beyond just inventing penicillin. He wants you to impact and affect eternity, right? So when he says, work out your salvation, what does he mean? Well, he says, look, salvation, the gospel has, done a, has begun a good work in you, he says in Philippians 1. That work needs to keep working its way out in your life uh, to the full end of what God has saved you to, what he's called you to do, what he's called you to be, in Christ. You need to keep working that out in your life. That's what he means. Um, And and, and, and throughout the the New Testament, there's many examples of that. And we don't have time to go into it. But just in this section in Philippians, he talks about what we're being saved from, what we're being saved to, a transformed life. And we just don't have time this morning to go into that. Um, But you are saved to something great. Right? And we should never think, you know, I've been saved, and so it's all taken care of, and I don't have to worry about it. Right? God calls us to a life of obedience, to the obedience of seeing the gospel do its work to the full end and extent of, its, of God's intended purpose in our life. Uh, jump on to verse 13 real quick. Um, so work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. By the way, fear and trembling uh, really has the idea that you will stand before God in judgment. Okay? Why do we fear God? Well, we fear God because someday you will stand before Him. 
And being saved should not rob us of the fear that goes with standing before God. Right? And when you get, we stand before God, there will be two questions asked. The first will be a matter of your salvation. Have you appropriated the salvation available through Christ? Right? And we talked about that. And of course, in that case, God's provided the complete means of salvation. There's nothing we can do. So when God looks at us, all he wants us to say is, yes, I believe. And to have that evidence through, through the obedience of faith. Right? Because Jesus did it all. But then it goes to question B, part B. What do you have to show for it? Okay, that's the question. And for every Christian, there will be an accounting. What do you have to show for the gospel? What do you have to show for the fact that Jesus died for you and his gospel has been at work in your life? Right? And he says, you better work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because you know, it's going to be really a bad day if you stand before God and you are saved. Whew, praise God for that. And he says, what do you have to show for it? And you put this pile of stuff before him and he puts it to the blowtorch, right? Because that's what it says. He's going to put it to the fire. And he's going he's to put it to the blowtorch and everything you thought you did for God just disappears in smoke, right? And the fire is gone and there's just this pile of ashes and God says, hmm, well, you know, the door's open. Your life was meaningless, but you're saved, right? Okay. Uh, none of us want to stand there and experience that, right? And the sad truth is there's many pastors, missionaries, Christian workers, believers who will experience very much on that day the burning up of all their work and effort, right? Why? Well, just as salvation comes through what Jesus has done, in the same way, when God asks the question, what have you done with your life? The only answer is going to be what he has done in your life and through your life, right? Anything you have done apart from God is not going to last. It will burn, right? So when, when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, trembling, he's talking about the outworking of the gospel in and through your life, okay? And then he follows it up with, it, uh, with some really encouraging words. He says, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Here's the good news. Um, the work that he requires us to do, uh, what he calls us to do in obedience, is not something we have to invent or come up with on our own. Okay? Uh, you don't have to be real smart to do this. Okay? Smarts might be helpful. Right? You don't have to be very talented to do this. Okay? This is good news for me. Uh, you don't have to be super spiritual to pull this off. Right? Because he says, God is at work in you. That's the whole point of this. Jesus died, the gospel came, he has worked his salvation in you. He wants to work out his working in you. Okay? Um, And he says he does that in two ways. First is by steering our will. He says, God is at work in you first to, to will. Okay? He is steering your will. How do you know what to do? Well, the good news is that God is, through, through the gospel, through his Holy Spirit, through his word, is, is turning your will in the right direction. Right? What are the deepest longings and desires of your heart? 
I never met a Christian who had any, any experience with Christ at all who said, you know what I really want more than anything in the whole world is to be filthy rich. Right? Uh, I've never met a believer. Now, a lot of us would like to have a more comfortable lifestyle, right? But if we talk about the deeper things, what do we want deeply? What do you want deep, deep down in your heart and soul? Um, when, when we think about New Year's resolutions, what is the deepest longing in your heart for this next year? I know, I know for none of you it's making money because you wouldn't be here if that was your goal, okay? You would have chose a different country to live, most likely. Um, a different profession, for sure, right? Um, what do you want out of life? Probably most of us want to know God, right? We want to know God. We want to love Him, right? Where does that desire and that longing come from? God is at work in you. He is steering your will, steering your heart in the right direction. So as you think about what you want to do for, the, for this year, you can be confident that God is directing your will. Right? God is putting in your heart a desire for his purposes. Right? And uh, you, know, you may have some crazy ideas. You know, Like, this year I want to like save... Some stand country, you know. <laughs> I want to see, I want to see a hundred churches planted this year. I want to see people come to Christ. I don't know. God may put in your heart vision for huge things that you'll say, "Oh, that can't possibly be from God." Well, where does it come from? Right? Where does it come from? God's plans for us are way bigger than our plans for ourselves. So first, God is working in our, steering our will. Secondly, it says he's work, at work in our doing. He's at work in our will. He's at work in the doing. And this is the cool thing. When it comes down to it, the work we do is ultimately the, the work of God working in us. Right? Language kind of breaks down here because it kind of doesn't make sense. How can God do the work I'm doing? Well, it doesn't make sense, but it's true. Right? God is at work in, in us. To, and it says, to, to the end of his good pleasure, to the fulfillment of his perfect plan and purpose. Right? Um, so how do we tie all this together? Um, what does this all mean? I think it, it means this. As, as we look at a new year, uh, God has saved us, right? And we have this incredible salvation as a gift from God and he has saved us from a horrible past, but he's saving us to an incredible, glorious future where he wants to be at work in our life, accomplishing his will uh, by his own strength to the end of his glorious purpose. Right? That's what God calls us to. And he asks us to work that out, right? to be diligently stepping out in obedience to the unfolding of that purpose in our life. Well, real practically, how do we do that? Well, let me just give you three, and I don't know all the answer to that, just three quick things. First of all, it really does begin with the gospel, with what Jesus has done for us. It's significant that this, these verses come on the, on the heels of such an incredible passage about who Jesus is. Right? I think as you reflect on what God wants you to do this year, a good place to start is to just really reflect and meditate on what God has already done for you. Right? 
to really root ourselves deeply in the person of Christ and what he has done. Because we are obedient ultimately to the gospel, and the gospel is Jesus, his person and his work for us. So to be obedient to the gospel is to know who Jesus is. He says in verse 5, he says, you need to have the same mind of Christ. Uh, are Are we spending time and energy soaking up the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ? Do we really know who Jesus is? You know, my, 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 my own life, I just see how superficial and, and um, simplistic my image of Jesus is. great goal for this year is to say, I want to know Jesus more deeply. Because it really does begin there. If we start from any other point, uh, we, we, we will fall short because it won't be the work of the gospel unfolding in us. It'll be something else. Start there. Secondly, uh, it does take faith, right? As, as we come to know who Jesus is, his love, his power, do you believe it, right? Honestly, oftentimes I, I must admit, I don't have faith. Uh, for me, faith is a hard thing, right? So if you struggle with faith and, and you come to that and you go, Jesus, you, know, you say you love me, but... I know it in my head, but I just don't experience it, okay? I want to believe it, but like the guy in the Gospels, Lord, help my unbelief, right? Anybody there? Okay, if, you're, if you're there, skip that step, okay, and go to step three. Okay, and step three is this. Uh, do something. Find something to obey. And here's why, okay? For me, it's much easier to obey than to trust, And this is how it works. In the Gospels, when Jesus would do miracles, oftentimes he required faith, but he would ask them to do something. You know, he'd spit, make mud, put it on their eyes, right? Just gross. And then he would say, go wash it off, right? You've got to believe. Do you believe I can heal you? I don't know. Well, just go wash it off. Can you do that much, right? Well, I can do that much. I can do that, right? For me, sometimes obedience is much easier than faith. Right? When God says clearly, just do this. Okay, God, I don't know why, but I can do that. Right? I can take small steps of obedience. And the truth is there's faith in that. Right? There's something that builds faith when we take steps of obedience. So here's the deal. As God, uh, as you reflect on the gospel, as you read his word, the question we should always be asking is, God, what do you want me to do? What, what, does, what does obedience look like for me today, right? Uh, a good New Year's resolution is not so much what you're going to do in this year, but to start off just today going, God, what do you want me to do today, right? How can I put my faith into action? And again, not trying to be super self-righteous, not to make myself a good person and somehow deserve your love, but just say, God, I know you love me. I don't really believe it like I should, but what do you want me to do in response to that? How do you want me to live differently? Maybe it's just staying where you are. Maybe, you know, everything in you wants to just go home, go somewhere else, give up. And God says obedience means just staying the course. Uh, Maybe, you know, there are broken relationships in your life. And God says, I want you just to go talk to that person. Say, I have talked to him and it didn't work. So God says, I want you to just go in humility talk to that person, right? Uh, to share Christ with somebody. 
to, to do nothing. Maybe God's telling you, you know, this year you need to take a day off every week. <laughs> that was a novel idea. Okay? And believe me, you'll get all the work done if you just trust me. And I don't care if you believe me or not, but just be obedient. Get rest. Take a day off. Right? Spend more time with your family. I don't know. Right? What God will speak to you. Obedience is hearing God's voice. It means spending time with Him, focusing on Jesus, and allowing Him to speak into your life what He is working in you. Let's, uh, let's pray. And actually what, what I want to do is just take a few minutes to, to pray together and get in a group of two, three, four people just sitting right by you and just uh, spend about five minutes praying um, giving thanks for what Jesus has done and just saying, God, help me to be obedient. Show me what that looks like. So let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.